Welcome everyone to My Black Book Journal, powered by Act Justly Love Mercy. You all, we have Esau McCauley joining us today, the author of the new book, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Esau, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, really excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about your book. I had the opportunity to read it. I really enjoyed it. I follow your work for a while now and actually had an opportunity to hear you speak last year at, um, oh. at Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, you should have pulled up. If you, you know, I'm from Alabama. Well, you know that if you read the book. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so I was, I was actually, I was there. I, I came when you spoke at Beeson, um, had the opportunity to brought my daughter and really enjoyed it. Why did you come and say hello? I did. I did. You signed oh. my book for me. Oh, I signed it. Oh, look at this. I'm tripping. <laughs> well, I'm so I'm, I'm sorry. Mm. Like sometimes in those events, there's so many people coming and going. I must have missed it. I apologize for that. Oh, it's it's all good. It's all good. I should have told you about that. I thought about it when I was preparing for this. Like, oh yeah, I signed my book. Had an opportunity to come. Brought my daughter out that night. You're out there, so I'm excited to have this opportunity to interview you today. Oh, thank you so much. So. For our guests, you all, um, Esau's new book, How Far to the Promised Land, is a memoir. So it really focused on his upbringing. And like you said, from Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, born and raised myself. So, you know, happy to talk to another son of the state of Alabama. But we always have our guests as they come on, share a little bit about their journey. Will you share a little bit with us, uh, little highlights from your career and your life? I know you go into it in depth yeah. in the book, but just for our listeners, share a little bit about your, your life and your journey, how you got to this point. Yeah, I'm going to be nice to you because you know that Huntsville has beef with Birmingham, just a, a, as a general rule, because y'all city gets much more love than our city. Um, so, but I'm from <laughs> Huntsville, you know, which is about a 90 minutes from where you're currently located. Um, I grew up in an all black neighborhood. From there, I went on to the University of the South. In Swanee, Tennessee. Uh, I, from there, I went to Gordon Conwell to do my Master of Divinity. I then got married to this wonderful woman. She was in the military. We moved around a lot. And then uh, in 2013, I was accepted to the University of St. Andrews, where I did my PhD in New Testament under the direction of N.T. Wright. I graduated from 2016 and published a dissertation. And then a few years later, I, put a, I published a book called Reading While Black. African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. You didn't invite me to come and talk about that book. You must not like it. I just messed with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, that book did pretty, pretty well. It won Christianity Today's Book of the Year. And after that, I got a job working as a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Write a column about once every three or four weeks for them. My writings have also appeared in The Atlantic and The Washington Post and Christianity Today. I'm currently the Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, which is where I live in Wheaton, Illinois. And I currently attend Progressive so y'all, y'all Church he- in the south side of Chicago under the leadership of uh, the one of America's best preachers, Charlie Dates. Shout out to Pastor Dates out there. Y'all, y'all hear he, he coming for me. He coming for me talking about Birmingham and talking yeah. about his old book, y'all. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, we, we do have a beef right now because yeah. in the latest census data, Huntsville surpassed Birmingham and population is the largest city in the state of Alabama now. Listen, man, but we still are the economic engine for the state. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to tell you. Everybody knows about Birmingham. I mean, because of, uh, you know, Birmingham, because the Kings stuck there. 
And it's like Huntsville was always the city that America forgot. Everybody knows about Selma. Everybody knows about Birmingham. Everybody knows about Atlanta. Everybody knows about Memphis and Nashville, Jackson, Mississippi. But Huntsville is the, is the southern city that everybody forgets. But I'm gonna we're gonna make y'all pay attention to us, fool. Yo, so it's it's interesting because I have a homeboy who's writing a book about Huntsville, and he he told me through his research that Huntsville was the first city in Alabama to desegregate their schools, something I did not know about y'all. Okay, then. It's too late. I already wrote that book. <laughs> he late. He late. <laughs> all right. All right. So and he coming for me as well because he's talking about his book, uh, Reading While Black, which I did love. You know, shout out to the black ecclesial tradition, the black preaching tradition. You know, I do subscribe to it. And I'm a preacher as well. So, you know, shout out, shout out to people out here doing the work. So, <laughs> but in, in your, in, in your, in, in your most recent work, I want to, I want to quote something that you say and, and kind of talk about it. You say, a good narrative, a black one at least, is not owned by an individual. It is instead the story of a people. The focus on a singular person obscures the truth that the gifted are not the only ones who succeed. The weak are not the only ones who perish. The America we laud for producing victors still creates too many victims to be at ease with the way things are. In the end, my declining to answer is what the book is about. What I owe the audience, yes, but my people first and foremost, a story not about me, but about us. So for a brother like me, who grew up in the American South as well, as I read and engage your memoirs, people like me read and engage your memoir, what is it that you want us to experience as we engage this work? Yeah, um, what I, let, let me start at the beginning. Uh, the, the journey to writing this memoir began in 2017. Uh, my father was a truck driver, and he was on a haul from California back to the South when he had what we think might have been a heart attack and his truck veers off the overpass and then it falls down to the overpass below and he dies in a single car accident. And my family asked me to, um, I have a conversation. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty apparent that my family wants me to do the memoir. It's one of the clergy in the family, but I didn't actually know my father very well because he was in and out of my life as a child. And so anyone who's ever done a eulogy knows that when you do a eulogy, you can't just kind of um, make up stuff. You have to actually know the person. So I had to sit down with my family my, and, and his, um, our family and begin to learn a little about about his story so I can summarize him. But if you're a clergy person, you have to summarize that person in the context of the wider purposes of God. And you have to actually make, make sense of your own life because I'm caught up in his story. And as I sat down to... Um, to, to do that research and started talking with friends and family, I began to realize that his story wasn't just his story. It's a story of like black life in the South because what started off with, with a deep dive in his life became a deep dive into my ancestors. And I realized that, you know, over the generations, because black people are never separate from kind of the trials and trauma of, of what's happening in America, whatever happening in, in America always falls on poor black families. And so what I meant by that was, for example, I had a grandmother who who had her land stolen under Jim Crow. I had I had um, my uncles and aunties who went to segregated schools and and I was a child during the war on drugs and the crack epidemic. And so the story of America is it, always lands on black people. And so oftentimes when something like that happens, the only thing they care about are the people who survive. 
So the people who kind of make it out of that context and make it into the middle class, we begin to think that these are the valuable people. But what I actually want to say is that the real thing that we need to see is not simply the people who succeed, but the people who are stepped on and ripped apart by this country. And we have to ask ourselves, are we comfortable with an America that does this to black people? In other words, we tend to think that we can only learn the lesson from people who make it to a certain financial status. But I think that everybody struggles and their desire to try to make purpose and find meaning for themselves reveals something about what it means to be black in America. And it also reveals something about what it means to, what it means, what America continues to do to black people. And so my family's story is in a sense the story of America because I think that every black family experiences all of America. When you have resources, you can kind of shield yourselves from America's worst um, brokenness. You can kind of say, I can move to another neighborhood. I can ignore it. I can kind of wall myself off from the poor. But if you're black, poor, and Southern, the entire thing happens in front of you. And so part of what I wanted to do in this book was make people see this thing that was going on in front of them. How do we as black people, because you, you tell you tell this story with the kind of personal skill of a storyteller, yeah. but also the professional skill of a historian. Yeah. How, how do black people better how does your book better help us understand our stories and help us dive into our stories to understand them for ourselves, share them with the world and also share them yeah. with our families? Yeah, I think that one of the things that can happen is that statistics and information can become depersonalized. And we can know, you know, there was racism, there is segregation, there is striving while black, there is the stereotypes of the welfare clean, queen in the 1980s. And they can become depersonalized. And we can begin to just argue about these concepts. We can say, is policing broken in America? And I think that sometimes it's important to see how these things land in the lives of people. I'll give you one example. I, when I was a kid, I used, I read about Brown versus Board of Education. And I remember the picture that they that they showed in the text in the, in the textbook, where when Brown Board of Education passed, there's this little girl sitting next to her mom, and there's a newspaper that's open. In the in the girl, the mom is showing the daughter, look, it's integrated. And I thought, wow, Brown versus Board of Education must have been this momentous event that every black like like it was almost Juneteenth. We we're running around celebrating when Brown versus Board of Education passed. And so I sat down with my father, my grandfather, and I asked him. I said, what was that day like? Brown Bridge Board of Education had passed. Was, well, like, were you excited? He said, he didn't know. He didn't know the day that it passed. He didn't have a newspaper and he didn't have a television and he didn't have a radio. And he went back to segregated schools the very next day. And so what we think of as the, and my mom, it's interesting that you say like the first, the first school, Huntsville is one of the first schools to integrate it. My mom goes to integrated schools starting in like first grade. Um, and here's another example. Here's another example. Mom goes to integrated schools in first grade, but she goes to integrated schools, but the teachers don't treat her right, right? Because you're one of the few black students in these largely white schools, and these teachers didn't want to integrate. So we just assumed that once these, once you got to integrated schools, you were in, you were in the, once again, the promised land. But my mom talks about the ways in which she was treated by her teachers during her, her first years of integration. And so what we think of as these historical moments, Brown versus Board of Education, the forced integration of schools, what does it actually happen when people live through these moments and how does the actual trauma of these events impact their lives? And so what I wanted people to see then was the reality of black history unfolding in the context of an individual family. And I think one of the things that I learned 
when I was working on this book, there's a lot of older black people in our family who have tremendous wisdom and have been through a lot, but they don't talk about it. And there was tons of things that I didn't know had happened in my family until I sat down and asked them. So like I found out about Brian Whitwood. We can just assume that our parents are um, unaffected by these things unless we sit down and hear it. And most of the wisdom that they have, sometimes they would just give you survival literature, survival information. But ask yourself, like, why do your parents teach me to do these things without explaining the stories that led to this kind of wisdom? And so I think one of the things that, that this book also encourages us to do is to understand what your ancestors and what your living, what your living relatives actually have to go through to get there. And it's worth sitting down and talking to them. With that in mind, you talk about, you speak, you have a chapter in the book called Sophia's Gift. Yeah. And you, you talk about what, what you received from your great grandmother. Can you share a little bit about, bit about that and, yeah. and that gift that she gave to your family? Yeah. So Sophia's Gift is probably my favorite chapter. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book. And my great-grandmother, Sophia, was, um, she's a remarkable woman. In some sense, our family exists. I mean, not just biologically. The, it, it became what it was because of her and her courage. And so she grew up um, in the 1920s, I think. And they, they, at the time, they didn't teach black women to read. They didn't, they didn't see the need to do it. And so she was illiterate. She signed her name with kind of an X for, for most of her life. But nonetheless, she worked hard as a tenant farmer. And then in the evening, she would clean houses and she was a midwife. And she saved up enough money to buy a plot of land in the South under Jim Crow, a black woman. And that land becomes the place um, uh, on which my, my, my father was raised. And I spent the first years of my life on that plot of land. And Sophia's gift refers to this idea that they had in, in our family that, that she was a prophet. That um, Sophia, she's a believer. She she was a, a church board woman, but she also in our family, according to family legend, had to get the prophecy. And she she would look at you and tell you who you are, what you were about, and without any any kind of hesitation. And so what happens to her, which I, you, you have to, the the book goes into it into greater detail, is that eventually, through some kind of shenanigans that is done with uh, some some land some white landowners in the area she eventually loses that property and sophia's sophia's gift to us is like people might say that well she started off well she she accomplished all of this stuff and then the, and then the 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 she loses the land and so it may seem like if you listen to that story that like oh she almost got to the promised land but she failed but that's not how i i came to understand that that story is that what Sophia taught our family, and I think it's, it's something that stuck with me, that a life lived with dignity and faith can have its own beauty, even if the story doesn't end the way that we like it. In other words, we tend to think, once again, that the only lives that matter are the lives that end up in the middle class. But the fact that she fought for dignity in a world that denied it, and that she, and, and that she told us she made it as far as she did with the help of God, challenges me to say that I don't have to accomplish everything to be, to be successful. What I have to do is live my life with dignity and honor. And I've tried to emulate that in my own writing and in my own life, is to try to live with dignity and honor and, 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 and to have that be enough regardless of the outcome.
for so many in our generation, like searching and looking for this promised land or looking for yeah. attainment, achievement. Yeah. How do we live with that reality and that truth that that this what we may be externally searching for may not may not come into fruition in, in this world, but it may be something something greater than that. Yeah, so the language of promised land doesn't refer to heaven, at least in this book. When I talked about the prep, the promised land, there's this there's this um, verse in the Bible where it says they will all sit under their own vine and fig tree, and they they will study war no more. There will be no one to make them afraid. And for me, growing up in the context, one of the things that happened when I was a child is that my father he struggled with addiction, and when he was um, struggling with addiction. He was often violent in our house. And so when I was a kid, I dreamed of one day being in a place where there was no more violence. And I had my own stuff, my own violent fig tree, and there was no one there to make them afraid. And my dream was to one day arrive at that place. And so when I talk about how far to the promised land, what I mean by that is there's just a lot of black people who just want a life. They just want a life where racism isn't always coming for them, where family trauma isn't trying to undo them, where poverty isn't swallowing them whole. They just want their own bond and victory. And if they struggle and they fight and they push and they pull, they ask themselves, how much farther do I have to go to get there? And we can think that the only ones who matter are the people who arrive. But the reason that I didn't want to think about it in that way is I didn't want to consider most of my community and most of my neighborhood kind of a wash. In other words, none of these people who didn't make it to that place um, were, were, are valuable. But what I wanted to say is that the struggle to find that place, the struggle to find that place has its own beauty. And the struggle to find that place reveals something about what it means for us to be human. And so, but, and, and one of the other things that you realize for me is the promised land isn't valuable if only you get there. That if we're not asking ourselves, why didn't so many other people make it? Is it because I was the most talented or you were the most talented? It's not true. If you're honest with yourself, you look around your community and your neighborhood, there's often tons of talented people who, because the circumstances are often out of their control, they didn't make it there. And what are their lives worth? One of the stories I tell in the book is this time when I'm sitting in my house and I'm playing, uh, I'm watching television and there is a, um, there's a drive by that, that happens. And when, when they, when the shooting starts and the bullets start flying through the walls in my home, I just don't move. I had this clear thought that if they're shooting and they can't see, there's no need for me to duck. So I just sit exactly where I am until the shooting stops. And then after the, they pull away, later on that day, I come back and I look and there's a bullet like three inches to the side of my head. And I realized that I turned my head a little bit to the left or to the right. I would have died. And had I died in that moment, I was 15, 16 years old. The news would have probably said, look at this, you know, young criminal hanging out with a bad element. He got exactly what he deserved. Right. But I lived because, you know, God was merciful to me and the bullets didn't hit me. But that wasn't because I was talented. I wasn't. I didn't have a special gift of dodging bullets. And there are other people in our neighborhood who weren't as blessed to be able to have the bullet miss them, 
Did they die because they didn't want it bad enough? I'm, I'm going to tell you this, man. If one more person talk about manifesting something, I'm going to jump out of a window because you can't manifest yourself out of poverty, right? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, like some people can, <laughs> yeah. but if it was simply the power of poverty, positive thinking, you think we'd have this many black people in the world that was broken, poor, and suffering? And so what I want to say is lots of people were talented. Lots of people were gifted. Lots of people grinded 24-7 and chased their dreams. And sometimes they couldn't catch up. And because they, just because they couldn't catch them, it doesn't mean that their lives weren't valuable. And, and, and I want to tell you this. And, and, and one of the things that I realized is that you can't hug success. Success can't love you back. And so I wanted to give a, a, a better picture of, of flourishing. And I want to define flourishing as living a life with dignity and honor and faithfulness. Hmm. You, you come to that reality and, and you take us on a journey as you talk about your father, as yeah. you talk about your grandfather, as you ask questions, like you said, and you listen to your family, you come to a better understanding of the challenges they face and the decisions that they made. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I hear a lot of pastors and, and preachers and talk about like a kind of really coming at this, this concept of ancestral worship, which yeah. and, and it's almost like any like, because it's so prevalent in our culture. And we don't take time, though, to think about listening to our elders. Right. Yeah. Like we don't take time to think about what does it mean to sit with them and listen to their stories. And I think we've gone from one extreme to another. But what your book is teaching us and what you're saying is that if we don't listen to our elders, we never really gain a proper perspective. Can yeah. you share a little bit more about that perspective that you gain from listening? Yeah, I think that one of the one of the things about if you think about the Bible in the Old Testament in the Bible, you learn by just watching what the people do. And sometimes you learn by, you know, following after their pattern. They do something and then you do it. But oftentimes you also learn by their mistakes and the wisdom that they that they come through after having been through all of this stuff. There's this there's this character, Jacob. Um, it's funny. He gets to, he gets this moment in the Bible. I think it's Jacob. Um, he gets to the end of his life and he says, put away the foreign gods. And after he's been through all of this, you see all the mess he gets to. And he gets to the end of his life and he says, you know what? I need to put my trust in the God who's carried me through. But you have to see him go through that journey. to So then you can arrive at that place without following through all of his mistakes. And so for me, listening to my ancestors, and the reason I tell the story, right? One of the things that happened is that when we have people who have a real impact upon us, their lives strongly influence who we are and what we become. And these stories in their lives kind of sit with us. And they return to us again and again and again. They never let us go. For example, my father, he was he was gone throughout most of my childhood. And I know what it's like to, as a son to try to figure out what it means to be a man without your dad. And that mistake shapes the rest of my life. Because I said, I don't want my children to ever have that pain. And so it made me, in a sense, into a better father, Right? But I don't have to then repeat that mistake in order to like get to this. So my kids don't have to learn from my pain. Like my, my, my kids can, can be protected from it. And so what I came to understand then is that even broken and difficult lives have something important to teach us about what it means to be human. 
And even one of the things that I couldn't see at the time as a child was that as a kid, when my father would, would leave and come back and leave and come back and leave and come back, I took it personally. Like he was doing it just to mess with my head. But what I recognize now as an adult, he kept coming back because something in him knew that he was supposed to be with his kids, that he was supposed to be a better person, but he couldn't figure out how to get there, right? That he could, he 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 actually couldn't figure out, or he he couldn't find the strength to be the man that he needed to be. But there's something about that returning that is also instructive, right? And so what I'm saying is, the lives that came before us reveal something about the human experience, and they give us a chance to write a different ending for our stories, and. One of the things that I that I got from listening to my grandparents and all of those things and great grandparents and all of the people around me is not that I want to worship them, but I'm grateful for what their struggles taught me. And I hope that the same thing that they taught me, they might teach the reader. Right. That that the same Sophia that I can't forget after you read about Sophia. Now she's a part of your family and you have to decide what you're going to do with her narrative, too. Yeah, absolutely. And. I think as I was reading about your story, it brought to mind my own story. It brought to mind my own relationship with my father and the type of father I want to be and how it reminded me of saying to myself, I don't ever want to be like that. And I'm going to run far as I can away from that. But I, I had to realize that the absence of one thing is not the presence of something else. Yeah. And I had a lot of anger and it was not until I encountered the Lord that I I learned how to be the type of man that was put in my heart, right? Yeah. That vision. But it also gave me the strength I needed to forgive and to try to start building and moving toward a relationship. For those who may be reading this and, and struggling with their own family story because of their own pain, what would you say to them who are struggling to find beauty in the midst of that brokenness? Yeah, I think that I would say... One of the things that um, that that I think is really important is to understand that, as for me, this is how I came to the conclusion. When I was trying to make sense of my life, there were two or three things happening at the same time. One is I'm dealing with family trauma, right? I'm dealing with the things that happened to me. I'm also dealing with poverty, the the lack of resources. I'm also dealing with racism in America and all of these things. They don't they don't line up in a in a neat row. Like on Tuesday, racism shows up. Wednesday, poverty shows up. Thursday, family trauma shows up. They just kind of come at you over and over again. And it's actually in that context of family trauma, racism and poverty. And I'm trying to figure out the question of God and where God is in the midst of all of this stuff. And one of the things that I eventually concluded, which you get to in the book, is that. God is there in the midst of it. And when you discover for me um, God's hand of providence, you can begin to see people as what they really are. In other words, when, when it was when it was simply about me and I was at the center of the story, I became I got really frustrated because I'm like, why is this man tripping on me? Why is he making my life worse? When I when I when I got older and I began to see as a person of faith, I was like, you know what? 
The, the issue isn't the fact that this, this man abandoned his children. The real issue is this man's life is hurling towards a tragedy. That, that, that the story of his life may be he was someone who was addicted to drugs his whole life, alienated everyone that he ever knew, and then he died. That's actually a tragedy. Apart from me, if you just told me that in someone's life and you described it, I was like, that's a tragedy. And you know what I can say about that? Apart from my personal stake in it, I wouldn't want anybody's story to be like that. And as a believer, I could think that everybody's life always has an opportunity for a turn, right? For, 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 for a final act that might be redemptive. And so the, the, the reality of grace and the fact that I didn't want anybody's life to end in tragedy gave me space to hope for his forgiveness. Now, I mean, hope for his redemption. Now, what, what I mean by that is it didn't mean that we immediately got into a relationship, like that, that we became cool. And I said, what you did didn't matter. No, no, no. What you did mattered. But I just don't want that to be the end of your story. And what that meant for me personally is that I could root for him from a distance. And I think forgiveness for me is not ignoring the past hope, the past hurt. For, for, for me, forgiveness is wanting the person who harmed you to change for their own good. I got to the place where I didn't need anything else from my father. By the time we got to have a conversation or whatever, he was an, I was an adult. I was a grown man. I didn't need the, the chance for him to have the father son relationship to shape me into what I became had already passed. All that was left for him was for him to have a better ending for his story. And I think that what we might be able to say is, can I get to that place emotionally? Where what I want for that person who harmed me is not to end their life broken. Because for a while, I didn't care if that brother lived or died. I'm going to be keeping it 100. And as a matter of fact, the more broken he was, the more it justified my anger. It justified my, my frustration. And I got to this place where anger is a good motivator, but anger can't build a life. Forgiveness opens up the opportunity for hope. And so I would hope that anybody who had a difficult kind of um, experience with their family, even if it's from a distance, because sometimes you got to protect yourself. I don't go into all, I didn't go into all of that mess. So you're still in it. But at least I can say I hope for more. And I think that's what we might we might all want to strive for. Yeah, I found that through as a theme throughout your book that kept coming up like hope, even in the midst of the challenges that you were experiencing. Um, yeah, hopefully the only word that's in both in the title of both my books reading while black African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. And then one family story of hope and survival in the American South. I think that when you grow up where I grew up and you see the things that I see, one of the questions that I asked myself was why hope for anything? Why believe at all that your future can be better than your present? Because it was, it was the context in which hope was so hard to come by. And I think that if you're a black person and you know anything about American history, you can go from the from the from the capture through the middle passage to the chopping to the slave block to the plantation through Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, through the war on drugs and and mass incarceration, through the present wave of anti-black racism and ask yourself, where's the hope? And for me, the answer that I came to. Is that in the midst of all of those difficult and dark parts of our narrative, 
there was a God who was fighting alongside us to make us a little more, a little more free um, as the years and months and centuries pile one upon the other. And, and, it, and, and, and if my book inspired people to hope for a little bit more and not a naive hope, not a naive hope, but a hope that comes from people who've been through it, um, then it's done its job. Amen to that. So where can people follow you and where can they purchase this book? They can purchase a book wherever books are sold. You can get it on your local bookstore. If there's a local black bookstore in your na- in your area, please go and support that. Obviously, if you don't have a bookstore you can, that you can go to, you can find it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million. Um, get, a, get you a hard copy, get you an audio, get you electronic, get whatever you need. Um, so they can, find, they can find it there. And before I let you go, we have a segment on my black book journal called Reading Brings Me Joy. Yeah. What's something that you've read recently that has brought you joy? Man, I'm I'm working on a project um, right now. I can't give you the title yet because we're talking about this book, but my next book. And I've been reading a lot of abolitionist literature and seeing how um, mm-hmm. the black abolitionists were, were reading the Bible and seeing in it the God who liberates has been um, spiritually and materially has been a real encouragement to me. And that's what I've been reading a lot lately. Awesome. You all, Esau McCauley, his new book, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. I really enjoyed it, you all. I have a ton of notes as I was writing through it. That's why we call this My Black Book Journal, because we journal through our books. Um, I think you should get the book, read the book, get the audio book, let Esau read to you while you're driving in your car, you're running those miles. Um, Isom Magali, thank you so much for joining us on My Black Book Journal.